Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Corder. I'm Alex Argo. And I'm Alex Robinson. This is episode 26. So it's, yeah, it's, it's been a while since uh talked to you guys. You guys been up to anything recently? Well, the reason we missed recording last week was Alex and I were out in Denver at 360 iDev, and I also ended up spending a couple extra days after the conference touring around Colorado a little bit. Sounds pretty fun. I'm jealous. Yeah, it was my (laughs) first time in Denver and Colorado, so it was a, a neat place to visit. Yeah, I liked it, but by the time I was there for my seventh day, I was definitely ready to go home. And the funny thing is when I got back here, I felt like I could breathe like a Superman or something. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we visited. So when I was out there touring around a little bit, we went to Boulder and climbed up a mountain there. So we're, I was up like 6,500 feet or something, which is not that big of a deal. And then, uh, also went to Pike's peak the next day and the the summit of that, or the top of that is, 14,000 feet, <laughs> you can really feel the difference there. The temperature is colder, and I was getting dizzy and getting a little headache, so I was experiencing some altitude sickness. And uh, it's funny, on the way home, on the way back down the mountain, they tell you, use low gear. And when you get about halfway down, there's a guy that does a mandatory brake check. And if your rotors are over 300 degrees, they tell you to pull aside. And wait till they cool down. So, yeah, it's these people that ride their brakes all the way down instead of actually using the low gear, and they get in trouble. So I was good, one sixty six. Still seems pretty high. That's what I thought so too. But he was like, "No, no, no, the max is three hundred. You're doing fine." And there had to be at least seven cars pulled over with their hoods pulled up or opened up. So, yeah. And there's a gift shop right there, too. So, go figure. Well, that sounds pretty fun. How is the actual conference? That's the first time for both Sam and I to attend the conference. It's been running for several years now. It's one of the older iOS-centric conferences out there, one of the older and bigger conferences. and attracts people from all over the place, lots of speakers, many of which you've probably heard before. At one conference or another. So exactly how big is it? I still don't quite get kind of a sense of scale. This year, I believe it was a little over 390 attendees. Okay. Uh, this is the largest number so far. So it's not anywhere near the 5,000 of WWDC. And it, you can definitely argue that the smaller group makes it easier to network and and get to know people at the conference when you're at a conference like WWTC with 5000 others it's easy to kind of get lost in the crowd and you know you might meet somebody in line and never see them again in, during the entire conference at WWTC so you know the smaller conference is definitely a little bit more uh more casual easier to to get to know people and and socialize 
but in terms of content, WWDC is obviously very focused on lots of code, lots of technical overview of of all the new features. Where this this conference had a lot of different tracks focusing on business code. Uh, it used to have a pretty strong gaming track. Now it's been less and less every year. I think they still have a code jam or a game jam near the end of the week where people stay up all night building some game related app that they demo on the last day and a few of our friends here in Cincinnati participated in that that was kind of neat sounds fun any cool games that are gonna blow the world away that you saw or can you not talk about them right now I I don't know how many of them will actually ship I do think that some of them occasionally will find their way into the App Store from previous years. I think this year there were a couple of interesting ones. A couple of people did some work ahead of time and had a fairly polished app that they plan to ship pretty soon. Um, and one of our Cocoa Heads members did an app um, using Sprite Kit. It looked kind of interesting. Maybe we'll get him to do a demo at it one of our meetups soon cool so what were some of the favorite talks that you guys saw would you say well my favorite by far was from one of the guys at bombing brain who they make they do a lot of text processing or text displaying in their apps and <clears throat> their one the presentation that what the guy did was called magical words and it's a text kit presentation and honestly, I, I, I know I watched some of the WWDC videos from a couple of years ago when it came out, but it was just something that kind of flew by me. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll get to that someday. And I didn't get to it ever. And now what I, when seeing this session, it just really opened my eyes to how powerful text kit can actually be. So that was definitely my favorite one. Um, just really cool things that you can do, like with annotations and uh, displaying and formatting text. and So it kind of opened my eyes and inspired me a little bit for some apps that I, I would like to work on. I think for me, one of the better sessions was a workshop on the first day on adaptive layout uh, for iOS 9 and iOS 8. And... I got a lot out of it because the big project that I work on most days is, you know, by corporate standards, doesn't allow the use of interface builders. So we've got lots of interface code, um, a lot of layout code all done by hand. And so having an opportunity to do more of that in interface builder through a workshop was handy, work with size classes and uh, some of the newer features and interface builder with Xcode 7. That was, that was helpful for me. So do you think your newfound experience will be able to convince the powers that be at that client to uh, switch to using interface builder, or is it a lost cause at this point? <laughs> I don't think their opinions of WYSIWYG design tools has changed. You know, There's okay. definitely plenty of shops out there that are anti- um, 
WYSIWYG tools. Um, they don't like the kind of stuff that gets generated or or just have their rational or irrational opinions about why that's a bad approach and you should do everything in code. Um, personally, I don't have a strong opinion. I, I feel like I can easily go in code or go in interface builder and not have any troubles. I like the idea of doing it in interface builder because that's a lot of code I don't have to write and maintain. And generally you get more feedback when you're doing it visually than, than you do in code. Well, it's a nice separation of concerns too. Yeah. Now sometimes I feel like with more complex or dynamic constraints, I feel like I can manage that a little bit better in code sometimes. Uh, but gotcha. interface builders definitely come a long way and especially with auto layout you don't necessarily you can't blame the tool as much as you used to be able to so can you do size class work with pure code or do you have to use interface builder to work with size classes i think you would have to have more conditional logic in code i don't know they didn't really cover that in uh in the workshop and because we're still supporting iOS 7, we don't really do anything with size classes at this point. I mean, most of our code is fairly adaptive, but um, we're waiting on dropping support on iOS 7 before we really embrace it. But I, I would imagine there's a decent amount of conditional logic to do that in code. Yeah, it seems like you'd have to set up with your um, transition side, the the method that gets called when you're rotating the phone to transition to size class. I guess you'd have to install all your constraints for that class at that point. Yeah. yeah it seems like it would be messy. Um, I definitely like where interface builder is going. Uh, stack views are awesome. I wish we could use those now. It takes a lot of the manual setup of constraints out of your hands and lets the tools handle it for you and makes it real easy to add or remove elements from your your storyboard without having to recreate all your layout constraints you can just kind of drop it in and like if you wanted to add another column or row uh, to a, a view you can do that easily with a stack view where before you kind of had to delete a bunch of constraints add it in add the constraints back in to account for the new view that's been inserted into the, the view layout. So, yeah. We well, just have to use one of those backports. There's yeah. like four or five of them. Yeah, some days. of them I think are somewhat uh, compatible with interface builder. So, oh, yeah, really? it's not, cool. uh, I mean, it's probably not quite as smart as what's built in, but I, I believe somebody in the, in the workshop said that one of them does work with interface builder and you can kind of drag and drop and sounded cool. pretty nice. Hopefully it's reliable and doesn't cause issues in production, but I'm going to have to check that out. Color me intrigued. <laughs> but, yeah. <clears throat> I don't know how that would work with Cocoa Pods or something at the very least. Cause I did try doing a, uh, control customizable control in uh, the, some of the code I work on during the day and you can do it but it'll compile your entire app every time you make a change 
in order to display that view in Interface Builder. And so using the uh, IB Designable, yeah, it does add that extra step there. That's still more rapid than like firing up an app and getting to wherever it needs to be. But, <laughs> yeah, not ideal. It sounds like, especially if you have lots of code. Well, the app, yeah, the app I work on, it tries to compile all the targets, and that's a lot of them. You can see that being problematic. So, any uh, any other thoughts on 360 iDev or? Well, yeah, I mean, I just want to get say one thing. When we uh, at work, when we do our uh, retrospectives for our, our sprints, the Scrum Master always leads in with this guy called Norm Kurth, and he's just got this thing called a Prime Directive, where basically states that whatever you understand or discover after the sprint is done, you have to realize that everybody did the best job that they could, given with what they knew at the time and their skills and abilities and resources. So to that end, there were some sessions that I just felt like they lacked polish or good technical content. Maybe they were slightly misleading or something like I wouldn't have done that. Uh, but I realized that everybody did try their best and they, they did what they could. But, uh, <clears throat> like there was one on unit testing and I thought that was going to be really good, but I was a little bit let down because a lot of the test examples showed things like testing whether a nav controller pushes on the right view controller. And that just didn't really help because it's to me, that's like testing Apple code and that's really something that doesn't belong in a unit test. Um, but the spirit was there, and it did open up a lot of people's eyes to unit testing. I just hope it didn't lead them down the wrong direction too far. There was the occasional session that was a little bit short. So I would think that maybe the presenter didn't have enough time or realized he didn't have enough content to cover the full 45 minutes. Or sometimes you just get nervous and talk really fast when you're in front of a big crowd of people. That's happened to me before. Oh yeah, definitely. And that helps. That can be helped with practice. True. And so you gotta, you know, when I've done conference presentations, I usually will practice at least three or four times and run through the entire presentation and even make some of my uh, friends and coworkers sit through it. Not as a punishment, maybe. <laughs> Maybe a little bit as a punishment, but I can see you doing that as a punishment, Sam. <laughs> I, I think it's also great to find your local Cocoa Heads group or NS Coder group and try out the presentation there. That's often a, a great first step of you know vetting the topic, getting feedback, and making sure the the length is right. And um, you know, you can a lot of times you can travel a little bit. Most Cocoa Heads. Organizers are often looking for presenters, especially of something that's a little bit newer. So rarely will they, they say no. So you can get that practice in, get the feedback in, and get it polished before you get up in front of a room of 200 people and, and provide that content and find out it's too short or you missed the mark on the content. I think a lot of yeah. some of the sessions felt like they covered the what, but not necessarily the 
the how or why. So you wouldn't necessarily be able to walk out of that session and be able to execute on it. You might know what it is, but you wouldn't necessarily know how to do something about it and or, or add it to your projects. Yeah. Or if you have to deviate from the standard path, then what's going to happen next or why is it not working? Yeah. So I think the moral of the story for our listeners is um, if you have a, a topic that you want to know more about, you know, put a talk together and, and submit a proposal to 360 iDev or your Cocoa Heads group and, and present. There's really nothing stopping you from doing that. You know, yeah. It's good to have the variety and, and new topics, new presenters. I, I think part of the challenge, too, is you get a lot of the same presenters at all these conferences, so the content's not necessarily new. When, you know, After you've seen the videos online or followed the blog posts from other conferences, then you end up having a lot of repeat content from one conference to another, so it's good to have that variety. Encourage other people to submit proposals and, and give talks and share different perspectives on, on maybe the same topics, but not have the same content over and over again. Yeah, and don't don't get discouraged if you do submit a talk and you get rejected by the conference organizers. Because in, in the case of 360 iDev, I believe they had well over 200 submissions. And I don't know what, I think it was pared down 25? to a little, there were a little over 60 sessions in total. Uh, a lot That included lunchtime speakers and keynotes and things like that uh, in a game jam session. So I'm not sure how many actual talks there were. Yeah, so probably close to, say, 75% of those talks were rejected. But that doesn't mean that they were bad talks. It just means that there wasn't enough room. Or they were multiple talks on the same topic, so they had to pick the one that had the best abstract and and, and put that into the agenda. And I think a lot of presenters submit multiple topics for the conference, so you don't don't have to limit yourself to one. You can if you can't decide what you want to talk about and there's several things that interest you, then you know, feel free to submit multiple proposals. Yeah, but the danger of that is if multiple proposals get selected, <laughs> then you're on the hook for all of them. Yeah. And they might have something to, to deal with that as well. I don't remember anybody this year having more than one talk during the, the conference? Uh, I think there was a couple. Uh, I know one guy, at least one guy, did a workshop the first day and then a normal presentation. Yeah. I think there might have been one other guy that did two topics, not including a workshop, but I can't think of his name off the top of my head. But there definitely were good ones, and there definitely were not-so-good ones. And that's any conference you get to. You're gonna, It's going to be hit or miss with your sessions. But usually, overall, the, the chance to meet new people 
meet people in your field, you meet like-minded people, and to see things that you may not have had time to look into. It's it's a good opportunity. Yeah, I think that probably more than anything is is the reason to go to these conferences is to get involved in the community, meet new people. People, you know, even if you go to your local Cocoa Heads, uh, you'll get a chance to meet people outside your city that you won't meet anywhere else and, you know, share ideas, get inspired, um, make friends and colleagues. Yeah, uh, though for me, being an introvert, I think most of my meeting new people energy was used up on the first day. But I did meet a few good people, and they were fun to hang out with and talk to. Yeah, and several people that I've met at other conferences or or venues, uh, events that I got to see again. So it, it was definitely worth the trip. And you know, even though the sessions are probably going to be available online for everybody, uh, it was good to be there in person, and I'm glad I attended this year. Yeah, I think I would go back but only if I don't get into WWDC next year. This is a it's a pretty good alternative, I would say. Yeah, and I think definitely considering AltConf next year, if I don't get a ticket to WWDC, just to kind of be out there and uh, run into some folks that, that maybe don't come out this way, that are on the West Coast or outside the country that I don't get to see very often. Yeah, I was actually really impressed with the AltConf lineup this past year. They were streaming a lot of videos live during the conference, and I was able to catch a number of them. And yeah, I mean, I was actually pleasantly surprised for how good it was for it being basically a free conference. Luckily, everyone converged on San Francisco, so you got a lot of good speakers out there, I guess. <laughs> And those talks are up and available on the Realm, is it Realm.io, yep. their site? Yeah. Everything's on Realm.io. Yeah. <laughs> they also do this thing called a, called Realm DB, but I think they mostly do conference talks these days. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of, of conferences, uh, if, you, if you're looking for something a little bit different, maybe a little bit more speaker variety. Uh, we've, we've got release notes conference coming up in October. So, so check them out. Um, should be a, should be a good one. You, you can, you'll see some of us there at least. <laughs> yeah. I've been to two conferences this year already. Fair enough. What's nice about this conference is it's a, a different take. It's definitely focused on the business aspect of being an indie developer uh, the speaker lineup is is not your usual folks. It's some people not even in the in the Apple ecosystem or that have some expertise on running a business. So you're not not going to see the same talks that you've seen everywhere else. Uh, it's hopefully will be more inspiring than than uh, depressing. So, and there were definitely some talks at other <laughs> conferences that were more discouraging for indie developers than inspiring. So I'm, I'm hoping this one will be take a positive tone to that. 
Yeah, it's it's been like that in the in the blogosphere as well yeah. too. It seems like everyone has their horror story of how they quit their job and couldn't make it work or whatever. And, so. and statistically, they're right. I mean, it's you're now running a business and you're in a mature marketplace where it's competitive and it's hard to be discovered. So you've got to think about things like marketing and how to find your customers and customer support and how you're going to differentiate your product from the 100 other products that are very similar. So, you know, in that sense, yeah, most, most Indies are probably going to fail just like most new businesses fail, but you know, you're, you're going to a conference and hopefully you're going to be inspired more and encouraged to follow your dream than being told that uh, you're wasting your time. Well, it should help you avoid the pitfalls that, Others have gone through that caused them to fail. Yeah. But running a business is tough and it's a crowded space. So, you know, it's not going to be easy. So hopefully you'll pick up some some nice inspirational talks or, or how-tos on on marketing and, and the business of app development to give you a leg up against your competition. One thing that has inspired me a bit lately is there's there's some hackers who have been playing around with their Apple Watch, uh, and some people have actually got custom watch faces uh, running on WatchOS too. I think it was. I think. Yeah. I think you. That's it. I think you threw this one in there, Sam. So, do you have anything you want to say about that first? Well, I, I saw a Mac Rumors article about this, and basically, it looks like a lot of watch kit is based off of UI kit. And so these people have kind of tricked the watch OS to load their custom uh, watch faces. Uh, some of the things you have to do is a little bit of uh, objective C runtime hackery. So you have to, uh, it, the number of watch faces is, is actually hard coded in the OS. Oh, fun. <laughs> yeah. So we're not going to be seeing custom watch faces in 2.0. Ever. Well, so so can I run this right now, or does it? Is there some other process that has to happen? It doesn't look like you need a jailbreak. It's hmm. pure Objective C code. It looked like um, the GitHub repo doesn't have any uh, actual like step by step instructions. It just has a brief discussion, but doesn't really tell you how to do it yourself. Maybe there's an issue for that. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. The, the same guy who did the custom watch face also uh, ported, I think, like a Flappy Bird clone to the watch. Okay. A while back. So, yeah, um, watch kit is basically a custom UI kit, or like subclasses of UI kit and UI view. And the watch faces are the same, and you just kind of somehow trick watch OS to load, it, load your app or your and did uh, you overwrite this one file or one entry in an array? And there you go. Then you get your custom face. So I think it's going to be kind of cool. I mean, maybe someday in the uh, Cydia or Cydia or however you say it in their market, you'll be able to sell a custom watch face. Or hopefully Apple gives us custom watch faces at some point because we're pretty much the only watch platform right now that doesn't have the ability to make custom watch faces and i really miss my pebble watch face that said beer o'clock i'd even settle for a beer 30 
but <laughs> some more fun stuff needs to be out there. I hopefully Apple will open that up at some point. We'll see. Yeah, it's gonna be like the old days when people on other smartphone platforms were like, "Hey, we can copy and paste." Can you yeah, do that? <laughs> or, and it was horrible to copy and paste, and now they've copied the iOS implementation. Yeah. Let's <laughs> see yeah. what happens with that. Yeah, I want to keep my eye on that one. It might be fun just to play around, put out my, mm -hmm. do my own custom watch face just for the, the hell of it. So has anyone been following this uh, this new startup, apphub.io? I have not. What is it about? They're basically uh, a new startup who will let you deploy uh, apps to the App Store, and they they need to be a React Native app, but they, their basically selling point is, hey, you host your apps on our server or whatever, or they're open source, so you can run your own server, but you don't need to uh, submit your apps through Apple to, to get new app updates through. It seems like a very bold statement for them to make. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like a good way of getting your app rejected. Yeah, and there's yeah. definitely explicit language in the review guidelines that prohibit downloading executable code. And normally I would say, like, I haven't heard of any cases of anybody getting rejected for that, but I did actually hear a story recently uh, while we were at the conference of some folks that got rejected and Apple actually required them to kind of show their JavaScript code and what it was doing. And uh, so it sounds like there are cases where Apple will, will take issue with downloading JavaScript and, and similar types of code. Yeah. So like uh, from the beginning of the app store, you know, it was basically the review, the guidelines said no, no downloading code except for all the game developers complained until Apple kind of made an exception. And that's still kind of like one of those gray area exceptions where I don't think it actually says anywhere that you can do it, but everyone still does. Um, but yeah, I've got a feeling if, if this gets popular at all, Apple's going to try to put a stop to it somehow. Although it is funny. They do point somewhere on their website to uh, the section of the Apple app store review guidelines and say that, the, the rule about the downloaded code uh, basically says that they're allowed to do it. I'll, I'll read the part uh, and the rule that I think they're going off of. So basically the only thing that you're allowed to do are, are things run by Apple's built-in WebKit framework or JavaScript core, provided that such scripts and codes do not change the primary purpose of the application. So I, I guess that's their, their argument. Uh, I can see that getting ignored by a reviewer. It seems like a nice try, though, and it may work for a little bit. We'll see what happens. Yeah, we did. You did say it's built off of React Native, and so you're still going to be running through Apple's JavaScript core. Well, yeah. So it by by it it follows the letter of the law, but it does not necessarily follow the spirit <laughs> of the law. So Apple is prone to update the guidelines when the spirit <laughs> of the law is not followed. But we'll see what happens. It seemed like React was cool like six months ago, which is like ancient times in JavaScript yeah. land. <laughs> so is it still... I, I don't know. I haven't heard anything about it since. 
the uh, the Facebook conference yeah. that announced React, React Native. React Native or React JS? Really, either. I don't. I don't. I haven't. Outside of Facebook, I haven't heard anything more about it. I don't think you follow the right circles to follow React JS. Probably I mean, not. Neither do I. <laughs> but but yeah, I, I went from being like really intrigued uh, by React Native to kind of like. It's a curiosity over there in the corner that I'll kind of keep an eye on, but I don't know. I I don't really want to play around with it anymore. I think part of it was it was announced, there was a big fuss, then it went quiet yeah. for a few months and got released months later, but only for iOS. And I, as far as I know, Android support has hasn't been released yet. So, and and at this point, other this is probably the first React Native topic that's come through our radar in months yeah i believe i looked probably a week or two ago and they still had not released their android app android support yet if your main reason to to do react native was to do something like uh, the app hub io uh stuff it seems like right now there's no no need because review times are really quick right now um i i released six updates the other day and i think Four of them got approved within hours, and then the other two got approved the next day. No expedited anything, which is insane. I'm assuming they're just like gearing up for uh, a big bunch of reviews that are going to happen in a couple weeks. But it's it's nice if you're trying to submit updates right now. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear there. There's going to be a, a pretty hefty media event in September. You know, launching iOS nine, Watch OS two, and probably some new hardware. And you know, I you know, it definitely could be them trying to clear the queue so they can get those great apps out there for iOS nine. I didn't have quite the same uh, success on review times. I think I still had a few last week take days, but I have definitely seen seen even even that was an improvement over previous weeks where it was five or six day business days to get an app reviewed. Well, maybe they're doing a little bit more automated reviews. Like, so Google, several months back, they introduced a little delay in the, in their Play Store release process. And they basically have a number of reviewers and a lot of automation around it. And they kind of announced it. And everybody's like, really? You're looking at our apps now? And nobody had noticed the difference between the old times when you could just hit the button and it would be out there versus the uh, the apps with the reviews showing up in the store. So maybe Apple's automating a little bit more? We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I, kinda, I, I think it's just they're staffing up before a big storm hits in a couple weeks, but... Could be. And I think they also like to clear it out before the holidays too. Like yeah. I think they they take a break right around Thanksgiving, don't they? And again over the Christmas holiday. Well there's a freeze like the third week of of December, I think. Somewhere around there usually. Within about um maybe it's not like halfway through, but there's a there's a freeze in time for the holidays. Yeah. I, I do think there's often a Thanksgiving one as well. Hmm. 
I think they didn't do it last year or something, maybe. Something like that. But yeah, they're, I guess web objects can't handle all of the stuff that people are trying to do during the holidays. <laughs> so they just say, no, we're not going to do it. <laughs> Good old web objects. Java is what I think all of the stories are built on. So Yeah. Well, I also noticed that the new iTunes Connect is built on Angular, which I thought was interesting. And sometimes I feel like I'm I'm pushing it to its limits, especially with app videos and lots and lots of screenshots for different languages. It is a little bit clunky. Just the workflow to release an app is a little clunky these days. Yeah. Yeah, speaking of which, uh, just to give you guys an update on Fastlane, I've been messing around with that a little bit more. Um, so I got, I think since we last talked, uh, every time commits happen, we get a build up, uploaded to Apple's test flight, and that was actually working pretty well. Um, and during the last week, our, our certificates expired, so all I had to do to fix that was to add in the... the the calls in Fastlane to Sci insert the provisioning profile and certificate tool. And those um, work perfectly. They just downloaded the, the ones that were necessary and signed things, and they definitely do not uh, delete any certificates. So it's not like Xcode where you hit fix X or fix issues or whatever, and crazy stuff happens. Uh, it seems to, to work pretty well. And then I actually, the submissions we were talking about, I submitted those all uh, with Fastlane as well. And it was a pretty pretty smooth process. There's only one one little hitch in the, uh, the advertising ID section after you've submitted. It looks like there's a, a current, currently a bug in Deliver, which is a tool that lets you, you know, fill out all your, your metadata and click click all the buttons to to submit to the app store and I and it looks like maybe that's being worked on uh, it looks like deliver itself is in the middle of a rewrite to use spaceship their new tool so hopefully that'll get fixed soon so I can just hit the button and it'll go all the way through it really makes me not as scared to to release stuff anymore if you have a bunch of apps, anyone, I would definitely recommend checking out Fastlane. At this point, I've had pretty good luck with it. So We had a little bit of work or a little issue with it when uh, we tried it out recently at work. Yeah. It seemed to not work correctly if you had a watch kit target in there. Mm. Gotcha, mm. yeah. I... I I've not dealt with submitting any WatchKit apps yet, so I, I can see that not yeah. being caught up yet. And I'm not the right person to comment on it because it's yeah. more our, our release engineer, also known as the team lead. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he found the issue out on GitHub where, so we got a, we just tested it with one of our binaries and it had a WatchKit extension in there and it got rejected. Uh, I forget the exact reasoning because I haven't been into work for over a week now. <laughs> poor Sam. Yeah, poor me. No email, nothing. It's going to be awesome tomorrow when I get back into work. But, uh, yeah, so there was some kind of issue with WatchKit. And I think the error message was a little obtuse. 
because it said something about Swift as well. But hmm. they're working on it from what I see. Okay. I wonder if that's held up by the, the rewrite of of Deliver maybe as well to to get it up to using kind of rest restful calls as opposed to I think it was doing a little bit more screen scraping type stuff. Mm-hmm. So who knows? Maybe it'll yeah. be fixed soon. Here's crossing our fingers, but yeah, it's really it's really nice to uh, go get a coffee while the app's submitting or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And if Apple wants to Sherlock that, more power to them. Yeah, I mean they they've already started to give us some tools to automate that stuff with Transporter, which Fastlane uses, and they want to give us more. I'll happily take it. Yeah. Whatever you can build into your CI environment. Yep. It's it's awesome. So do you guys do any interactive prototypes for your apps that you work on? The only thing I've ever worked with personally is a little iPhone app called Prototype on Paper. Pop. <laughs> Basically, you just draw pictures on paper and take a picture of it with your iPhone. And then you can set up like little hot areas inside the app. And uh, so like it'll click and then go to another another photo. Um, some buttons, you can kind of set up things. But it's very much a like back of the napkin kind of design app. I've never, I've dabbled a little bit with some of the other ones. But I always find them kind of complicated and just think, why don't I just do this in interface builder. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of similar. The last time, other than playing around with like pop, uh, is years ago, I messed around with, with some prototyping tools before a lot of the mobile stuff was, was really out there. Like they were just like, Oh crap. We added some like iPhone OS two buttons on here. And so we support mobile now. These were some more traditional, like, prototyping tools kind of geared towards, uh, like, web apps. So, yeah, I haven't done anything recently with, with any good tools, which sounds like maybe there's some good tools now. Yeah, there's definitely a lot more options today uh, and huge range of how they work and, and level of complexity. There's a pretty good article that came out recently that compares five of the top prototyping tools include includes Proto IO, Pixate, Origami, Framer, and Form. What's kind of interesting about this is two of those are owned by Facebook and two were acquired by Google. Uh, so some of these big tech companies are making some big investments in these tools and obviously they're trying to incorporate them into their own workflow. Um, the article does a good job of kind of distinguishing between kind of the traditional storyboard workflow type of prototyping tools like Pop and more animation-based tools like Origami that let you not just animate from screen to screen, but animate contents on a screen, more like layer-based animations. Uh, definitely a good article to read, and uh, the author does a good job of of explaining the differences and builds the same prototype in 
all five tools and shares the results. Uh, but there was a new tool that came out recently called Principle. That's uh, for Mac, and it's a it's a neat little app, uh, very much on that advanced layer-based animation um, category of prototyping tools. And and on the surface, it looks pretty easy to use. It's got keyframe-based animations, and under the hood, it uses core animation. So you know it's going to behave pretty similar in the prototype as it would in the app. And the value of these tools, it really kind of depends on your needs and who's doing the prototyping. But, you know, we've definitely found that doing some early interactive prototypes can help flesh out requirements and avoid avoid rework later on, and especially the tools that let you put together a prototype rapidly. Yeah, I've, I've definitely seen how that could be helpful, especially just like... Um, you know, using something very simple to just get like the flow of an app down. Um, have Have you seen any kind of good use cases for kind of these more in depth things where you're like editing down to like the like keyframe animations and getting your animation curves exactly right and all that stuff? Like, have you used that with designers to any what? effect? Well, I or? definitely think these tools should be geared towards designers because I think if you're a developer, you can probably build these prototypes faster in something like Xcode. So if you're going to pick one of these tools, I'd pick one that that a designer could pick up fairly quickly. And they all vary quite a bit. You know, Origami uses this Quartz Composer patched-based visual programming language, which for some people, it, it may make a lot of sense for some may be terribly confusing you know it definitely could have a pretty steep learning curve then you've got framer js which is fairly powerful but it's all based on coffee script so you're writing code for everything and not every designer is really geared towards that and i, I think if i had to write code to build a prototype i'd probably just do it in the tools that i already know like xcode and interface builder and write my own custom animations that way. But in an organization where you've got dedicated designers, I could definitely see where these, these tools could be valuable. And if you look at things like paper from Facebook or um, the example in the one article was the if this then that onboarding screen where they didn't prototype the entire application, but just that one one entry onboarding workflow that had a lot of animations to it and really impactful first impression of the application. Definitely I could see where these tools could be easier uh, to, to rapidly create that and get feedback over getting some developers involved. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely been working on prototypes of things before and I, uh, start all right this is the screen flow i'm going with and i start getting to some of these you know little bugs and details of and, and taking a lot of time where something a lot simpler would have served me a lot better so yeah i definitely think there's a, a place for these tools yeah, and I, th I think both types of tools those screen flow type of prototyping tools like envision app 
where you can just take the artboards from Sketch or Photoshop and quickly import them into the tool and kind of wire up the flow from one screen to another. Those can be very useful and help everybody understand how the app is going to flow and how you're going to get from one place to another. A lot of times those static screenshots, it's there's a lot left to be discovered or or to be misinterpreted between the screens. You know, what's that transition like? Is it a modal? Is it a navigation push? Is it, um, you know, how do you get back? What happens when you delete the item? You know, where do you go back to? So those can be very useful. And then these high-end tools like origami can be good for those, those rich, interactive, highly animated experiences. So they, they kind of serve different purposes. Principle is interesting because it's very, you know, it kind of feels like sketch in a way, but it adds the keyframe animations into it. So it's it's kind of a little bit of that kind of anybody who's worked with the Flash designer tool back in the day, it will feel a little bit familiar to them. It seems like it's pretty easy to pick up. I'll, I'll be interested to see how that tool evolves and who's going to acquire them, whether Google or Facebook or somebody else. It seems like it's got to be one yeah. of them. <laughs> we definitely have a lot more choices than we had before. So if you're thinking about doing some prototypes, you know, this can be a great way, like before you even build an app if or even learn how to code, you can build a quick prototype and show it off to investors or or potential business partners and get feedback before you even invested any money building the app. Well, that's about all the time we got this week, guys. It's kind of a extra long episode because we missed last week, but it's been good talking to you guys. Uh, would you like to say where you can be found on the internet? I'm at AJ Robinson on Twitter. I'm at Alex Argo. And I'm at Sam Quarter. The podcast is at Shared Inst. Show notes for this episode will be at sharedinstance.com slash 26. And as always, we do appreciate any ratings and reviews that you leave on iTunes. And keep your app submissions coming. We didn't get to it this week because we ran out of time, but we will be following up with more. Uh, we do love to hear from you as well, so... Yeah, at reply us on Twitter and we'll get we'll try to get back to you. It can be a little bit busy during the week, but we do like to hear your feedback. Until next time. Thanks guys.